0: Well let's open our bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at uh, verses 17 hopefully down through 32. There's between uh, just the number of things we've uh, that have happened this morning we'll we'll try to get through this but I don't want to rush it either. I think the these two chapters actually three chapters 50 or 5 uh chapter 5, 6 and 7 are what we call the beatitudes and they they are really important chapters because it's where Jesus tells us what the attitudes, what the behaviors ought to be, our, our attitude as kingdom children, as children in the kingdom. Because if you belong to Jesus, you, you belong to him. And you're going to heaven. Are you excited about that? <laughs> I'm excited, yes. So, so we looked at the first... Um, 16 verses over the last couple of weeks, but we want to look at verses 17 through 32. So let's just read it and then we'll get into it. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law. Till all is fulfilled. And whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire." Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison." Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. And then Jesus goes on here and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a gift or a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And so some pretty difficult passages, wouldn't you say? And what Jesus is really getting into in these, uh, these, these verses in these chapters is he is drawing a distinction From what the Pharisees had done, in other words, they were focused on the external things, and God has always been about the internal things. It's always been about what's inside that's more important, not so much what we do on the outside. Because here's the thing, we can fool everybody. By our external actions. We, we can go through the motions of something and yet in our heart there's no reality to it. We might even be um, being, playing the hypocrite of, of doing something that we are truly are not. But we can put on the act. We can put on the show. And we can fool everybody, perhaps. But you can't fool God. Right? You can't fool him because he looks upon our hearts. He looks about what's motivating us, what's deep inside of us. And he knows whether we are driven, whether our motivations are, are led by his Holy Spirit or whether they are motivations that are just simply my opinions or my thoughts, my own actions. And the Pharisees, as we'll see, were very concerned about these externals, and that's why Jesus would make comments like, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit murder. And every one of us in this room would say, amen, you shouldn't murder someone. And yet Jesus took it a step further because the external act is something that we can all identify, but there's, there's a motivation, there's something inside that draws people or causes them to want to murder somebody, and that is their heart. And so the heart has to be fixed first. See, all of the penal codes in the United States and all, all over the world, the laws, all they can do is put Band-Aids on things. Do you understand that? They're just laws telling you that if you do this, then this is going to happen. And the fear of that keeps people from doing those things. But see, God, as a wise creator, he just doesn't want to put the Band-Aid on. That's all that government can do is put a Band-Aid on things. But God goes a step further to the internal because if you can change the heart, you can change the world. And didn't he do that with his own disciples? Just 12 men and they turned the world right side up because it was upside down to begin with. And see, that's what God wants to do. He wants to look on the heart, And that's why he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you even hate your brother without a cause or angry with your brother without a cause, then there's a problem, right? And just looking upon, you know, adultery is certainly a sin. But even looking upon a woman with lust in your heart or women with men, looking at a man with lust in your heart, that in as well is considered adultery because it's something that is in The heart and God wants to address the heart, and He wants to change my heart. He wants to change your heart. And when you are born again, the Spirit of God comes in you, and no longer are you um, governed only by your flesh. Now, your flesh can rise up at any time, but see, the Holy Spirit of God is sort of like that wonderful governor, and He gives you a new nature. But you have to decide whether I'm going to submit to God and obey him or whether I'm going to allow that old nature to rear its head. And so that's why you you can see in a Christian who's truly born again inconsistencies. You can see it in my life, and I can see it in yours. But I want to be more consistent. I may be born again, but I have issues like you do too. And so it's all about the heart. It's all about our hearts, and God wants to minister to our hearts. He's not interested in putting a Band-Aid on it, trying to get you to not do it so you won't get busted. No, he wants to change your heart so that you have no desire to do that thing. And see, that's the difference between religion and the difference between having a true and right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the difference. I can go through the motions... If I'm a religious person, I can do all the things that the church tells me to do. But see, we're not here to tell you what to do. We're going to tell you what the Bible says, and if we're wise and we're smart and we really love Jesus Christ, if we're truly born again, then I want to do those things that please him. I want to do those things that I know that we've already talked about in the Beatitudes and the first 12 verses of this chapter. I'm going to want to have those kinds of attitudes in my own life. I want to foster those things. I want to put feet on my faith. I don't want to just be somebody warming a seat in a church. I want God to change my heart. And even now, I want God to change my heart today as I'm sharing these things with you and he's going to want to he's he wants to change your hearts too. And in the process of doing that, he's 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 conforming us to his image. It's called the process of sanctification. And God wants to get to the heart of the matter. And so we're going to look at that. Let's go back to verse 17. Notice what Jesus said. He says, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. And I began to ask myself, Well, in what ways did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? And there were a lot of uh, Old Testament verses, and we're just going to quickly go through a handful of them. And there are many, many more, but these are probably the most significant, and that is uh, his birth. We know that in Isaiah it says, Behold, the virgin, the virgin, the definite article. There was one virgin, Mary, she conceived and bore a son and called his name Emmanuel, And we know that that's a prophecy of Jesus. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yes, Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was even incarnate. Of course he always existed but be, when he became incarnate through the 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 womb of the virgin mary when you know these things were spoken of him that he would be unto us a child is born a son is given and this son is going to be called wonderful counselor almighty god everlasting father yes this son is going to be equivalent to god the father they are going to be the same they are one jesus is god and that is the thing that's, that, uh, that puts a, a differentiation between all of the world religions, whether you're Buddhist or you're Islam or you're Jehovah's Witness or Mormons. The one thing that separates Christianity, this book, and, and what God has told us from every other world religion is the fact that Jesus is God and he bore the penalty for your and my sin. No one in any other world religion would even attempt to do that. They couldn't do it and they wouldn't do it. Because they don't even like to talk about sin. And nobody likes to hear about sin, do they? You've come this morning to hear how wretched you are, haven't you? (laughs) Of course you haven't. But I must tell you that that is the truth of not only myself, but for you as well. Yeah, that's the bad news. Because before we have the good news, before the gospel, before we have good news, we've got to understand the bad news that I was born in sin, I'm a sinner by nature, and I need to be born again. Jesus said that. You must be born again. Nicodemus, you very religious man, you member of the council or the Sanhedrin, yes, even you, member in John chapter 3, you need to be born again. And so in Isaiah 9, verse 6, and it goes on and it even goes further into the, uh, the millennial reign of Christ in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. It says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will be formed. This. So, how did Jesus fulfill the law? Here are two verses. What else did he do? He's also the sacrificial lamb. In Genesis chapter 22, remember when Abraham was going to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah. And as they were going up the mountain, Isaac said, Father, we have the wood and the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord himself will provide, will be the lamb and obviously a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. And so they get up on the mountain, and right before Abraham is going to thrust this knife into his son's chest, upon whom the promises of God had come, the Lord stops him, and he sees a ram caught in a thicket, and he substitutes the ram in place of his son. But Abraham knew that very day that there was something in this whole thing that was prophetic. In fact, Hebrews tells us That by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, "In Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding, here it is, that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received God or Christ in a figurative sense. He knew he was acting out something that was yet future, because on that very same mountain, on that very same spot, Thousands of years later, another father would give his son and sacrifice him, except this time there'd be no, nobody calling out saying, don't go forward, don't do it, here's a lamb. Because Jesus was that lamb. It was ordained from the beginning of time. Jesus is the lamb, as it tells us in Revelation, I believe it's 13, verse 8. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world even came into existence, God had a rescue plan for humanity because he knew he had to give them a choice to either accept him or deny him. And he knew in his omniscience that man left to his own decision would choose to do evil. And he had to have a plan. And yes, that plan, that rescue plan was his very own son, the very blood of God, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, to take the place. And Jesus, of course, is the Passover lamb. Exodus 12 tells us that when they were about ready to go out of, out of Egypt, that very night... God had told them to take the blood of a, first, the, 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 a male of the first year, a lamb without blemish, to take the blood of that lamb and to take it and, and dip hyssop, which is like a brush plant, and you dip the blood and you hit the lentil of the doorpost and the side post. So you swash it that way and you swash it that way. Wow. Looks like a cross. Go figure. <laughs> And everyone who was in the house where the blood had been applied was spared, but everyone who was not the firstborn of that family, the firstborn of everything, was killed that very night when the death angel passed over. And Jesus, being the firstborn, being the lamb without blemish, and his blood sprinkled on that cross, signifying that very thing, that lentil and the doorpost, as you read in Exodus 12, that very same figure was done on that cross. And yes, it was prefigured all the way back in Exodus 12. And so this is how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Not to destroy it, but there's even more because he goes on and he says that he was also a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And of course, God is speaking of, of Jesus Christ way back in the time of, of Deuteronomy, during the time of the Exodus. According to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more lest I die. And then the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. And I, and I, I missed a verse here, or a, a, a phrase, so you're probably wondering where are you going. But here it is. Verse 18, I will raise up for you, for them, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever, hears, who, uh, whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And so this prophet that is spoken of in Deuteronomy 18 is prophetic of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill And then we look at Jesus' suffering and his death in Isaiah 53. We know that he was the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It tells us he was the one who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, who bore our grief and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our iniquities, and by his stripe we are healed. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. It pleased the Lord. It satisfied the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. It satisfied the holy mandate of God, the holy law of God to do that to his only begotten son, it pleased the Lord to bruise him because it satisfied his holy requirement that with sin there must be a death. And Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, he made his soul an offering for sin. And what about Psalm 22? Where it speaks of the description of it, it speaks in the first person as if somebody was standing or being suspended and hung on the cross. David, the prophet, a thousand years before Christ was born, speaks as if he was going through the crucifixion himself. Even a long time, several hundred years before crucifixion was even invented, David would say that, um, you know, that my feet and my hands were pierced. Crucifixion wasn't even invented by the, by the Jews. It was perfected by the Romans, but it was invented by the Persians. And what about his resurrection? It tells us in Psalm 16, Therefore, let my heart, my heart is glad and my glory, glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in hell. If you have a King James or Sheol, same thing nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of the resurrection, what about his second coming? Zechariah tells us, uh, and I'll just read this to you, this is one of the most incredible verses. I love Zechariah. As you read the last few chapters of Zechariah, you feel like you're on New Testament ground because it's speaking of the millennium, speaking of things yet future to us today. But let me read to you What Jesus fulfilled. He didn't abolish it. He's going to fulfill this, what we're going to read. Everything thus far, He has already fulfilled of things that I've shared with you, but these are things that are yet future that He is also going to fulfill. He's not going to abolish it, He's going to fulfill it. It says in Zechariah chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and it's speaking of this end of the great tribulation period when Jesus will physically return to the earth for a thousand years and uh, we saints of his will rule and reign with him. But notice, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And the city shall be taken, speaking of speaking of Jerusalem, and the houses rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go out, notice, and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, Making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will remove toward the south, and half of it toward the north. And then they shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with him. Yes, that's you and I. When we come back physically to the earth with Jesus after the rapture, we will come back with Jesus on this day. And it shall be one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea or these uh, Uh, the Dead Sea, and half of them toward the Western Sea, which is speaking of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. I'm looking forward to that. Aren't you? And this is what Jesus has yet to fulfill. He didn't abolish anything we talked about earlier. He fulfilled it, and he's given us more Because he's going to fulfill that as well. He's going to fulfill that as well. And these are just to name a few. But let's go on to verse 18 now. Jesus goes on and he says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And this one jot or one tittle is something that we don't quite understand. But in Hebrew letters, they have little markings on a character. And those markings mean something. It can add a, um, more clarity to a word. It can change the word slightly. And especially in numbers, having a number and then a dot can mean a whole different thing by factors of 10 or 100 or even a 1,000. And so these little jots and these little tittles, these little marks, it would be equivalent to our dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's. And he's basically saying that heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Everything that Jesus has spoken in the Old Testament and everything that's remaining for us in the New Testament is going to be fulfilled completely completely. And literally, and it's happened already. He's fulfilled many things, and just as He did, He's going to fulfill them literally going into the future. You can rest your, you can put every, you can bank everything on that fact and that truth. God's word is going to be fulfilled in the very smallest, minutest way. And I'm really glad for that. Aren't you? So verse 19, he says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notice in verse 19 and 20, it's speaking of believers. Yes, Speaking of of a believer's response and obedience to the word of God. Because if I'm obeying them and I'm teaching them, he says, great, are you going to be in the kingdom of God? But if you don't do those things that I've called you to do and you teach others so, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. That's interesting, isn't it? Because there are unbelievers and then there are believers and yet they should be doing better. And yet they're not the best example. And God is saying, you're going to be included, but you got to, if you believe in me that my blood paid the price for your sin, you're, you're going to be in glory, but there's going to be a difference. There's going to be a difference. And that's what the Bema Seat Judgment is all about. Rewards or lack of rewards when we get to heaven. When we are raptured and taken to heaven, we will get those rewards or lack of rewards, but we'll still be there. And it's important to not make light of those things, but to live the life that Christ has for us, to be the examples, to do those things, to be a doer, not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And yes, that is meant to encourage you, to kind of goad you a little bit, into, and for myself as well, to really dig in now, because folks, this is the time. I believe this with all my heart. There has never been a time in the history of the church in this country Where we, right now, need to stand up. We need to really do our part. We need to get right with God. We need to repent of our own sins, and we need to get right with him, and we need to be the the salt and the light that we talked about last week. We need to be that to the world around us that is completely clueless, that has completely abandoned God, and they wonder why these things are happening. Well, it's the judgment of God, I believe, the things that we're seeing upon us right now in our country. We have said no thank you, God, in our schools, and what do you get? Pronouns. What do you get? Transgender. What do you get? Bathrooms for everybody, where it doesn't matter how old you are or what sex you are, you can go into the same bathroom. What do we get? We get revised history. What do we get? We get, hist- or we get lessons that tell us, because you're white, you're inherently racist. Because you're black, you're inherently racist the critical race theory more likely it's 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 against you know white folks you know just because you're white you're, you're 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 you know you need to be you need to be reprimanded you need to go through schooling and be changed because you're you're, you're from the moment you were born you were just nothing you were just awesome. you were just worthless is that a solution why can't we just tell people regardless of skin color that you were made in the image of God, and God loves you. (laughs) Really? Right? Why can't we just do that? And that's what we intend to do at Boca. All that other stuff, they can have it, but not here. There'll be none of it here. And as Jesus said this to his disciples, that unless you know, uh, their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They would by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This seemed like to the disciples at that time an impossibility because the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the upper crust. They were the high and mighty, the holy rollers, the holier than thou. That's what they were. And everyone is like cowering in their their presence. They're, They're so holy. And God is saying, no. Your righteousness has to exceed that. And the scribes and the Pharisees taught the law, but they, did not, they were not obedient to the law themselves. What does it tell us in Matthew? In, the verse, in Matthew 23, in the first four verses, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so therefore whatever they tell you to do, to observe, that observe and do but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. In other words, they talk the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. And Jesus said, do what they tell you, because they were, the Pharisees knew the word of God, and they would, they would agree with a lot of the things, they just didn't do it. They got to the point where it became a business, where it became a a hierarchy. They are up there and we are all down here, just like little birds trying to get food from the master. And God's saying no. They were focused in the externals. See, many people like to talk the talk, but not many are willing to walk the walk. Many are content to appear righteous on the outside, while on the inside, there's a different reality. The Bible calls these people hypocrites, play actors. They appear one thing. They have a mask on. They're falling apart on the inside. They're completely washed up, and they're they're completely in their sins. And yet they have the mask on that has the smile on the face. I'm well. You're well. And everybody's well. You know, that's what a hypocrite is. And the American church is full of hypocrites. There are times that I unwittingly play the hypocrite. And every one of us, at some point, could probably be called a hypocrite. Because I'm not consistent. But the Pharisees were hypocrites because they displayed one thing outwardly, but inwardly a whole different thing. In Matthew 23, Jesus would go on and he would nail them to the wall, so to speak, and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you play actors, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Yes. He was hard on the religious leaders cuz they were the ones who were supposed to be leading people to Christ. They were the ones who were supposed to be the examples and telling people the truth, but instead they were making a lot of money. Does that sound like the church in America? Unfortunately, it does. People more concerned about money than men's souls. God doesn't care about money. Is is it necessary, yeah, to keep the lights on and all that stuff? Yes, it is. And to give, all that stuff is important. But is it his main thing? No, he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So what are we? Am I one of these? Do you act one way when you're in church and when you're around Christians? in a different way when you're around family and friends and co-workers? The Lord would have it that we are one way, that regardless of where we are and who, whatever company that we're keeping, we're consistent, we're the same. That's when I'm being genuine. That's when I'm really being who I really am. Regardless of where I am, regardless of who I'm in front of, I'm the same. What you see is what you get. If I don't swear here, I'm not going to be swearing on the, on the job site. If I'm not... Smoking marijuana in the church, I'm not going to be smoking it at home. If I'm not going to be committing adultery or talking about adultery in the church, I'm certainly not going to practice that at home. But that's why we'll see in verses 21 through 30, which we may not get today, where Jesus speaks to the heart of the law. The heart of things, not just the externals. Again, we can all put on the externals. And it doesn't cut it. From God's perspective, He's like, I could care less about what you think you look like. The air that you put off, the the things, the package that you've created so that everybody can see and go, wow, that person is so holy and everything. And and yet in their home life, there's all kinds of awful things happening, but nobody sees that but God. And it breaks my heart because. We've seen that in the church. You know, there's this display of everything's fine and everything's going well, and nobody knew, but all the time, for years, things have been happening that are just amazingly sinful. Years go by, and then finally the Lord says, You know what? I'm not going to allow this anymore. I'm going to expose you because you would not repent. And these things happen in every fellowship. And that's why it's important that we take these things seriously, the heart of the issue. It's the heart of the issue, not the externals. Yes, I may not commit adultery physically, but what, what, are, what is my thought life? I may not murder somebody physically, but what is the attitude of my heart? Do I hate them? Am I, am I harboring a bitterness in my heart? Is it like a cancer that's eating me so that I, you know, at some, some days it just, it starts to boil over like a seething pot? And we see the same principle in the Old Testament. It wasn't just a New Testament uh, or a New Testament ideal. Remember in First Samuel chapter fifteen, Saul or Samuel, excuse me, was speaking to Saul, and God had told Saul to go and kill. This is Israel's first king. He told him to go and kill the Amalekites. Yes, wipe out everything and everybody because their sin had been mounting up to heaven. God finally said, "That's enough. I'm going to judge the whole nation. I'm going to judge that whole people group." And Saul, I want want you to take the Israeli army and I want you to root them out. And Saul says, okay, I'll do that. But in the process of doing that, he sees some of the livestock and some of the nicer things that God says, I want you to destroy it all. And he says, no, I'll keep keep a few of these, you know, these Angus cows. I'll just kind of put them behind me. I'm thinking of filet mignon later, I'm going to put them behind me and some of the fatlings, I'm going to put them over here. Yeah, get rid of the ugly ones, the, you know, the ones that got the mole on the eye and I'll just get rid of them, but we're going to keep all the good stuff. And I'm going to keep Agag. I'm going to keep him alive too. He might be useful to me. And so finally Samuel approaches him and he says, remember the passage, and he approaches, Samuel approaches Saul and Saul says, I've done all that the Lord has told me to do. I've fulfilled the law. I've done all those things, and Samuel says, "Well, what's this bleeding of the sheep? I hear. What's behind door number two over there, Saul? Something. You know, there's a smell of cow back there. What did you do? What did you do?" And, what is, and so Samuel said has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord behold to obey, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry you think you've done the letter of the law but you've missed everything you've disobeyed God you see even in the Old Testament it was the heart of Saul God told him very clearly what to do. But he had a better idea. Aren't you glad when you have ideas that are better than God's? You're right. God tells you to do one thing. And you're like, you know, we can accomplish this much quicker and much leaner. Have you been to Lean Six Sigma? Have you been to the Fortune 500 classes? Because we can do this a lot more efficiently. If you would just call upon me, your humble servant. And God's going, no i got a better plan, and it's much better. And yes, it's not going to be easy. Yes, there's all kinds of forks in the road that you can take, but they're all going to lead you away from my central blessing. Do you want to go in a circular way and spend 40 years out in the desert? Well, take door number one, but I've got this choice for you, and will you be obedient? Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, you're going to go through spiritual attack. Yes, you're going to fail, and you're going to feel like a complete failure, but I'm going to work through it. And I'm going to see you through it. Are you willing to go down that road less traveled? Or are you going to go the road that's got all the footprints? And Saul was the one who said, I'm going to go where everybody else has gone. I'm going to do what I want. Because I've got a better idea. After all, we'll sacrifice those beautiful you know, Angus cows to God. And won't he be blessed to have this really choice meat on the altar? And God's going, no, I'd rather have obedience. I'd rather have you obey. And the same is for us. So even in the Old Testament, this was true, the heart of the matter. And what did he even tell Samuel when he went to Jesse's sons? And we're going to have to stop here in a few minutes. But what did, what did God say to Samuel as God told him to go to Judah and to go to Jesse specifically? Because Jesse had eight sons. And seven of them were standing there before Samuel, and God told Samuel that one of those he was going to anoint the king. And so seven of them here are, are right there, you know, sort of like that little sticker you see on the back of SUVs, you know, the families and, you know, from the top to the bottom. Well, there they are. And the eighth one, we don't know, we don't really care about him. But, uh, so the, now the seventh, uh, you know, the firstborn, Eliab, there he is, you know, handsome. He's got the blonde hair, he's got the, you know, And Samuel goes, that's him. That's him. That's the king that God is going to anoint. And you know what the Lord told Samuel? You remember, (laughs) he says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance. Do not look at his outward appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's always been about the heart, hasn't it? It's always been. And no different in the New Testament as in the, in the Old Testament. It's always been about the heart. And the Pharisees, again, were focused on the externals. And what did Jesus say to them in Matthew chapter 6? He says, and when you pray... You shall not be like the hypocrites, the play actors, for they love to stand in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Look at how beautiful I am with my robes and everything is just so. My beard is nicely trimmed and I even have a, you know, like a Sean Connery accent, right? And they're speaking and everyone's going, wow, they're amazing. And they're praying for so long. And they just keep going, wow, they're just something. For they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you go to pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, uh, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. See, with God, it's always about the internal. The internal reality So today, and this week, I want to encourage you. You know, there are many fellowships in the country, many churches. Don't we want to be a church, and I'm not just speaking about us, but in America, don't we want to be the type of church that is rightly fitted for what God has for us this day, in this time, in this culture that we're living in? Don't you think that he has a plan for us? And especially now, does he have a plan for the church to reach outside these four walls, to tell people that are hurting and lost, they have no idea what's happening, what's going to happen, but yet God has told us what's ha- I know exactly what's going to happen. And so do you. If you've been in this church for the last four years or the last 30 years, you know what's coming because we've been taught it from here. And we see the Braxton Hicks contractions already, don't we? We see these things beginning to come to pass and if we are wise, we will wake up from our slumber and we will give our hearts unreservedly to Jesus Christ again and say, Lord, I've been playing church, I've just been doing my thing, but Lord, today, I want to rededicate my life and my heart back to you. I'm done playing the games, I'm done playing church, I'm done coming in and putting on a facade and saying, well, I really am okay. How you doing? Great, brother. (laughs) And deep down, you're dying inside. Why not just be honest? Why can't we be honest again? When somebody asks you, how are you doing? Say, are you sure you want to know the answer? Because it's going to take about 10 minutes. Are you ready? (laughs) And if so, then let's go talk. Because I got an earful that I'm going to give you. And may we be those people saying, I'm ready. Because I got an earful too. And let's build each other up. Let's confess these things to each other and and love on each other. And instead of being enemies to one another and sizing each other up, no, let's forget about all the sizing up and let's just get real. And let's just help each other and love each other and be honest with one another instead of putting on the mask, playing the hypocrite, the externals. God hates externals and it's hard for people to understand, isn't it? When you are real and you're genuine, but they know they know something's different about you when you are genuine. Now, sometimes, don't get me wrong, you have to give a glib answer, you know? You may be late to your job and says, "Hey, how you doing?" I'm 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 fine, kind of, and then you got to go. You don't have time. But you know what? There ought to be people in your life that you can invest in, that you can report to, that you can be accountable to. Maybe another Christian brother or sister who has been in it longer than you have. Someone you can trust. And trust takes time to build, doesn't it? It doesn't happen overnight. It's not something you can just, you know, give your trust. I love when people say that. Well, you're a Christian. You need to trust me. It's like, no, I don't. I don't trust you. Trust takes time. And right now, you're not on a very good footing. It takes time. If you're honest and you say you're going to do what you're going to do and you do it, that's You're building a foundation in my trust for you. (laughs) But if you're not trustworthy, you're like shifting sand, you know, just kind of mercury. You're just kind of sliding everywhere. So we need to be that, those examples. Let's focus on the internal. That's what God wants for each of us, the internal reality. Who am I in Christ? Who am I, God? And what do you want to do with me? So if that is your heart, if that is your heart, Lord, I want to be done. I want to be done with my facade. I want to be done with putting on airs in front of people. If that is your heart, stand with me and let's pray. I know I put you in an awkward position because anyone who's seated, everyone's gonna look at. <laughs> Thought you called yourself a Christian. So I apologize if I did that to you, but sort of, I apologize, but not really. It's okay. Well, let's pray. And you know what? The Lord, I wanna encourage you that Jesus loves you. And you know, we didn't really get into the really hard part of this message yet. We'll finish it next week. But I want to encourage you that even though the word of God sometimes grinds us to powder sometimes, it really challenges us. It's supposed to do that. If you're a son or a daughter of Christ, then expect to be chastened. Expect for those things to happen. And I expect it too, and he does that to me as well. And therefore, I know that I have a loving heavenly father. If my father never cared about what I did, and just says, you know, just feel it. Just go and have fun. If that was his attitude, he really doesn't love me because he knows there are dangers out there that are going to destroy me. Destroy me physically, but even destroy my faith in in God. But God says, no, I care about you. I care about your eternal, but I care about you right now. I care about everything about you right now, your rent that's due. I care about the mortgage that you gotta pay. I care about the food that you gotta, you gotta pay for, this, which is three or four times higher than it was a few months ago. I, pay, I care about all of these things. He does. He cares. So Father, we just thank you for your goodness and for your grace. And Lord, would you just help us this week, Lord, to focus, Lord, on the internal things. Lord, help us to be done with those externals, the things that we can fool each other with. We can fool our family. We can fool our employer. We can even fool our wives and our spouses. But, Lord, we cannot fool you. Lord, help us to be genuine. Help us not to be like the Pharisees who looked one way and did one thing, but inside there was a complete different reality. Lord, may we be those people that what you see is what you get with all of our flaws and ticks and problems. (laughs) Lord, may we just be honest with you. And Lord, help us in this, Lord. To you be the glory and the honor and the strength and the wisdom. Lord, it all belongs to you. Lord, thank you for loving us. And I pray that you would just shine your light upon my brothers and sisters, including myself. Lord, shine your light upon us. Lord, give us that that unction, Lord, that love. Confirming your love, even as you have to do difficult things sometimes in our life, God for our own good, Lord, would you please show yourself strong and loving toward us today and protect my brothers and sisters, Lord, from the fowler, Lord, from the devil's devices. Protect us as men to be pure with our eyes, with our mind. Lord, help us with all these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.